You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr and I'm one of your hosts and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey, Robert. On today's episode, we talk with Kevin Nye about homelessness, the way that can impact mental health and how we could help. But first, Holly, how are you this week? Hey, I am doing pretty all right this week. It is a full week, my friend. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I know we were just talking about that a moment ago, but I'm I'm doing well. It's it's there's just a lot of open tabs going back to our episode Mm. a couple weeks ago. So a lot of tabs that are open right now. But it's all right. So what about you? How are you doing? Good. Similar, I guess, to, you know, kind of what you were just talking about. There's just, it feels like there's a lot happening um, or at least a lot of moving parts uh, of different, different areas of things happening kind of all at once. And yes. And so just, uh, yeah, navigating, kind of flipping back and forth between those tabs and uh, how to do that (laughs) effectively or not, um, things like that. So uh, yeah, just, uh, but you know, excited about uh, as always glad to be here chatting with you at Agreed. least for for yes. a few minutes and mm-hmm. uh, excited about this episode kind of launching out into into the world yeah no I totally agree I have to say too like just to you know push this this analogy too far um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the other thing I've noticed in the last couple of days is I will and I don't know if you ever do this but like I'll start responding to an email or a text message and then I hop over to like the next tab or the next thing. Mm -hmm. And then like three hours later, I'm like, oh my gosh, I never sent that email or that text or like that's kind of the, the space that I am finding myself in these days, again, with all good, good things. But, you know, just learning how to launch a book alongside a big survey that's about to go out too is a fun adventure that I did not think I would be mm-hmm. <laughs> navigating yeah. at the same time, but yeah, it is all good. So yeah. Well, Anyways. speaking of, I'll throw a, a as usual a quick note out there to uh, if maybe if you're new or anything like that, right? Go uh, pre-order Holly's book that is available for pre-order and will Aww. be out very soon, any day now. Uh, it, I know it's getting closer very and closer soon. here. So yes, yes, um, yes so it excited is. about that. But yep. definitely, uh, you know, go pre-order that and grab a copy. Or if you're listening to this, you know. After it releases, go go grab a copy. Regular order, I guess. Uh, yeah. Post order, yeah. Post, yeah. Yeah, just regular oh, order, awesome. yeah. <laughs> well, I know that uh, – I know uh, typically we have kind of a segue question. I know, as we've mentioned, both of us have a little bit shorter of a time today. So I think both of us felt okay, and maybe this is like a, you know, hey, it's fine to release some things, right? Like mm-hmm. uh, yeah, with the right. idea of kind of just – transitioning in instead of having a longer intro, but we did want to make sure we popped on and kind of checked in and and said hey to the listeners and all of that. So actually, uh, the last note that I'll throw out there real quick, when we recorded this there were we I think we mentioned he he's working on a book it's you know and whatnot but it actually mm-hmm. since we recorded this conversation 
there's the, the cover has been revealed and it is now up for pre-order. So Yay! if you want, I mean, it comes out in August, so you have some time. But when we when we recorded the conversation, that wasn't it wasn't quite up for pre-order or anything yet, and it and it has since been uh, put up there. So I'll mention that, and we'll toss obviously a, a link in the show notes to that. But you can pre-order Kevin's book um, if if you love this conversation or want to want to dive in a little bit more in in August. So yeah. Um, yeah, but that's awesome. Cool. Well, all that being said, Holly, thanks for being here, recording a, a little intro with me. Of course, uh, listeners, thanks for being here as well. You know, flipping us on on wherever you listen to your podcasts, and we will transition in so you can hear our conversation with Kevin Nye. All right, enjoy, y'all. Today, we are so excited to be joined by Kevin Nye. He works in homeless services and advocacy in Los Angeles and is a graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. Kevin also writes on the intersection of theology, justice, and equity, and pop culture. He was a contributing author for Theology and the Marvel Universe, which I could ask you lots of questions about after this conversation, maybe. Uh, Maybe that's a separate thing. And is the founder of Theophany. Did I say that right? Yeah. Perfect. A blog and YouTube channel looking at the intersection of God and movies. Uh, He's also hard at work on an upcoming book entitled Grace Can Lead Us Home, A Christian Call to End Homelessness, which is forthcoming from Herald Press in fall of 2022. So we have a little bit of time before that. But Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is there uh, is there anything else that our audience should know about you before we get started? Uh, I don't think so. You covered quite a lot of it. It's funny because the you know the pop culture stuff and theophany and all that. I haven't touched it in so long because I've been working so hard on this book. So it's funny to mm. to feel like that's part of my uh, my current bio, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe you can get back to it once you're done. I mean, I know writing a book obviously is is a lot of hard, intensive work. So, um, well, I, mm-hmm. I'm curious if you could tell us a bit of your backstory in terms of how you got into uh, homeless services and advocacy. Uh, is that like kind of what you had in mind when you went to Fuller, or did that kind of happen in in a different in a different way? Absolutely, yeah. It's uh. Yeah, there's a quite long version of that story, but I'll, I'll, of course, condense it. Homelessness has kind of been an interesting through line throughout my life. Um, not not because I've ever experienced it, but because I've always been uh, kind of drawn to it and close to it. When I was in uh, college, I uh, did a ministerial internship that was part of a scholarship program. And for the last two years, uh, I interned at a church that operated a really prominent uh, ministry for people experiencing homelessness. Uh, And then while I was at Fuller, uh, I did another internship at a church that had their own separate nonprofit that was uh, job training for youth who were experiencing homelessness. And at the time, none of that was intentional. Um, I wasn't I wasn't pursuing that on purpose. I didn't think that that was a direction that my life was headed. I I went to college and seminary with the expressed purpose of doing pretty traditional ministry. Uh, But by the time that I finished my education and it was time to uh, kind of start a career and figure that out, traditional church ministry wasn't, wasn't really in the cards for me. And so 
uh, looking around at what I could do with my life, um, living in Los Angeles where homelessness is so clearly and obviously the biggest issue that uh, we face, I decided to kind of turn my my attention and my, uh, my work life there uh, and started working at a nonprofit in Hollywood. And I've been there for over five years. That's awesome. That's, it sounds like such good work that you have been engaged in and doing. And I love just how you kind of walked us through that and the ways that you, you know, have, have jumped right in. Well, I know this topic of homelessness and housing insecurity is, is a big, complex topic and issue. And, um, and I definitely want to like dive in a little bit more deeply into that, but I'd love to hear, you know, I know our, our listeners, they might have kind of a general sense of, you know, the prevalence of, again, homelessness or housing insecurity. Can you talk with us a little bit just about this in general, in terms of getting an idea of the scope of this, like how, how, how prevalent is this? What are, can you give us some of the numbers around homelessness and housing insecurity? And actually, if you don't mind kind of disentangling these two words too, like I use them just in light of my social work background, but I would love for you to kind of unpack and explain what these terms mean. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, I'll be honest, I don't have a lot of the numbers right in front of me. Uh, the ones that I know are pretty specific to Yeah. Los no, Angeles. that's okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of numbers, uh, Los Angeles ranks among, you know, the, the top cities in America that uh, have large homeless populations. We, the best number that we can account for right now is about 60,000 people uh, who experience homelessness in Los Angeles County. That accounts for about 10% of the, the entire mm. country's homelessness. Wow. So <laughs> that kind of puts things in perspective for you. Yeah. We definitely see homelessness more prevalent in major cities, especially along the coasts, where where housing is more expensive, homelessness is higher, and those things are deeply connected, even though depending on who you talk to, uh, people may not want to make that connection for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of homelessness versus housing insecurity, uh, you know, the, the HUD definition of homelessness uh, is somebody who is essentially sleeping in a place that is not meant for human habitation. So whether that is on the streets in a tent mm. or in a car or you know in an abandoned building or even uh, somebody who is, is couch surfing or is staying kind of day-to-day in a hotel, uh, those are all people who are considered homeless. Housing insecurity uh, is sort of people who are more on the brink of homelessness who are spending more than a particular percentage of their income on housing. Um, And those are people who we might say are one paycheck away from experiencing homelessness through a combination Mm -hmm. of uh, income and then a lack of kind of safety net of social network of people who could take them in or who they could, you know, stabilize in housing with. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's helpful. So I know, uh, obviously, we don't, you know, the the exact numbers and whatnot, but I'm curious over the last little bit, like recent changes. So I was looking up, I was prepping a little bit, and the uh, the 
the HUD or whatever, right, the Housing and Urban Development, uh, they had their 2020 annual homeless assessment report. That's a lot of big words there. But uh, so this is from last year, right, that said chronic homelessness increased by 15% between 2019 and 2020. Uh, and obviously that's, that's a, a year old now. Um, and then it also pointed to a 7% increase among individuals experiencing unsheltered homelessness which it said, you know, making the first time there are more individuals living unsheltered than in shelter. Uh, what kind of things, I mean, and then we obviously all that was pre-COVID, right? So are there any kind of trends or things that you've seen in the last, you know, potentially with COVID exacerbating or anything like that, uh, things that are impacting those numbers that might be influencing them one way or the other or contributing to, to any of that? I know that's a big so question. So you've identified but- a really... Oh no no no! That's it's a great question because you you identified something really interesting is that all the numbers that we have are pre-COVID, and one of the reasons for that is that during COVID, a lot of the major cities, so cities are required uh, each year to produce a homeless count. Um, that's okay. that's a requirement of HUD. However, uh, cities were granted an exemption during COVID-19 to not have to produce those numbers because in order to hmm. do those counts, people have to gather. There's a particular, each uh, each continuum has their own sort of methodology for doing that, but it does require a concerted effort of a lot of people on the same night. So, and typically they're all conducted in January. So in January of 2021, mm-hmm. we were very reluctant to hold those events, right? Sure. Yeah. Personally, I really wish that we had done them anyway, uh, because the data that we lost about how the scope of homelessness changed during 2020 is crucial. And and we don't have it, unfortunately. The one that was conducted in January of 2020, which would have been two months before lockdowns happened, doesn't give us a picture of how COVID has affected homelessness. But that 2020 to 2021 uh, is just missing. Los Angeles did not do one. And so, you know, I have my own anecdotal, (laughs) um, understanding of how things were for us at the nonprofit I work for and what we witnessed, uh, in our, our neighborhood and, and those, what I've conversed about with, you know, my colleagues in different areas of the city, but we don't have a lot of good data, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Would you would you mind sharing? And obviously, with with the kind of caveat that it's localized to what you're seeing in your area and the people that you're talking to. But have there been changes or like large things that that you have seen of the ways that maybe COVID or the last you know year two years have impacted people? At least that you're seeing in the work that you do, even if we don't have that large data. Definitely, and I think that this would be echoed across across the nation. Uh, I've I've heard it articulated that. Uh, homelessness has gotten worse, if not quantitatively, then qualitatively. Mm. And and mm. that's anecdotally, I've experienced that 100%, that, that people uh, who were experiencing homelessness before or who I'm just meeting for the first time are in a lot worse shape than they were before the pandemic. And a lot of that has to do with uh, services being less accessible, uh, a lot of, you know, churches and and charities that that operated 
have had to shut down because you know volunteers aren't aren't as available as they used to be and resources mm-hmm. aren't as available as they used to be uh, restaurants where people were allowed to use the restroom or allowed to hang out were closed libraries and other public spaces were closed even government offices where you could get you know mental health care IDs have all completely transitioned some of them are starting to reopen now but only just barely and so for that especially that year from you know March 2020 to summer 2021 people were just really isolated and really separated from uh, their normal routines and their normal plans of care uh, in ways that really really harmed people we we certainly mm-hmm. saw an increase of of death amongst the unhoused population and not from covid but from the sort of byproduct of what we had to do uh, to be safe from COVID uh, without kind of taking into account all of the vulnerabilities of people. Um, so we've seen a huge increase in overdose deaths, and exposure deaths that has just been really tragic. That's related to COVID, but, but largely the unhoused population is not dying of COVID. Hmm. Yeah. Those kind of yeah. secondary ripple effects of things that sometimes it's hard to to see unless you are in direct, uh, you know, in direct orbit of the people or indirect contact with people that that those things might impact them in those ways. Right. Yeah. I mean, how do you shelter in place if you don't have a place? Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So can you give us, so again, you know, for, for a lot of our listeners, you know, this is maybe not something that we we've talked about before, to be honest. Right. And so, uh, if, if our listeners say, okay, we're kind of new to the conversation, right. What are kind of, the, the current general types of responses, and again, I know every place has different responses, right? But in terms of like how we are trying to help or things like that, I know obviously there's shelters and things like you're talking about there, but uh, it does seem like there's uh, a large, at least anecdotally, so I live in Atlanta, right? And again, I don't, I don't have, you know, extensive knowledge, but a lot of what I see appears to be more on the, uh, we'll say like, criminalizing homelessness like you can't be here you can't be here you can't be like you can't do that type of response which seems a little strange to me but like it is that uh maybe an accurate reflection or like what are what are kind of our current responses as a culture or society towards trying to help those experiencing homelessness or i guess maybe not trying to help them uh i don't know how to phrase that any better but does that does that make sense like what what we're what we tend to be doing. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there is, there is a concerted effort everywhere where there is homelessness to do something about it. Right. But whether you approach that as how are we going to best serve the people experiencing homelessness with what their actual needs are versus how are we going to eliminate homelessness as a, um, as a blight on our city, as a, you know, uh, as a problem for the thriving of local business, you know, how you come at it really determines how, what your response is going to be. We definitely are seeing a new wave of criminalization uh, across the country that is really disheartening. That has been our standard approach for a long time, uh, sort of coinciding with the the shelter or rescue mission model that essentially says, you know, we're going to build large shelters that are, you know, not exactly 
super desirable places to spend the night, but they are indoors uh, and they are supervised. And that is the option for folks who do not want to sleep outside. And so for those who don't choose that, then the criminalization comes and, and it doesn't necessarily matter if there are enough shelter beds for every person. It sort of is this idea that, look, we built the shelter and if you don't want to go, then, then you're choosing to be, to be homeless, which Mm. it, it does not match mathematically. It doesn't really make any sense. However, there's enough disconnect for most people that they're able to say, well, there are shelters, there are services. And if you're not taking advantage of them, then you just want to be there. Mm. Along, along with that model, kind of part and parcel to that shelter first model is this idea that you sort of have to work your way up toward housing. So uh, if you're on the streets, you get into a shelter when you're in a shelter, there's a lot of rules around, you know, sobriety, curfew, behavior. And if you follow all those rules and stay in the shelter, then you can sort of graduate to the next step. That next step is maybe a little more independent, like a, like a shared housing situation where you might have a roommate. And if you do well with the new set of rules there, uh, then you graduate to more independent living and eventually you can get your own like subsidized apartment. Uh, that's how we've done it for a really, really long time. Uh, and largely it's failed. It's not a really successful model because it puts yeah. so much burden on a person to sort of prove their worthiness for help uh, mm-hmm. in a system that is sort of almost waiting for them to fail uh, and then completely starting them from scratch when they do. However, there's been a new model that's been around for a couple decades now that when it is practiced uh, is really successful, but it's sort of, uh, it's controversial in many ways because it kind of comes up against our myths and our prejudices around homelessness. Uh, And that, that model is called housing first, where essentially a person who is sleeping outside is offered an apartment that is their own. Uh, that matches their particular needs, that is desirable to live in, uh, and they're given keys to that apartment, and they move in. And after that, then the services come in, and those services are actually voluntary. uh, Mm -hmm. And the people receiving the services are the ones who dictate what those services are, what services they need. Those services are mobile and come to them rather than expecting them to travel across town, managing a bunch of different appointments. There's usually case management on site uh, designed to help keep people in the apartment rather than waiting for them to fail out of it. And so there's been a really big push for this model and it's been really successful, like I said, when it's actually been practiced well. But largely it, it comes up against all these prejudices that we have that say, well, we can't just give them an apartment. <laughs> they they don't deserve it. They have to prove that they're worthy of it or they have to get sober first rather than saying, you know, a great way to help someone get sober is to give them a place to live yeah. <laughs> where they can yeah. actually, you know, establish a sense of safety, some ownership, some responsibility, a, a daily routine that's that's healthy. And that, that applies to, to mental health, to physical health, like all of these things, or, e- or even the notion of someone getting a job. Like how much mm-hmm. harder is it to, to get and keep a job if, if that's 
even possible for you if you're out on the streets versus if you have your own right. apartment to go home to each night. Yeah. No, I'm I'm so glad that you talked about this housing first model and have unpacked it in the way that you did. Um I know this is one that, you know, we have we talk with our students in social work about and you know, I've had students over the years like in even in like the research classes that I teach, like I'll give them a chance to like bring in a research article and to talk about it, and I know I've had students come in before with research articles on the housing first model and you know and they'll they'll teach about this this topic and the research that's been done to show its impact and the positive impact that it has on the lives of those who um receive this this form of service and that you know especially when you think about it from a financial standpoint i mean by investing up front in these ways it really does from what i've understood um it really does help in the long term in a number of different areas but you know i yeah i just i really appreciate you elevating it and and i you know have picked up on in some ways over the years, like why this has been really difficult to implement as you just articulated around like, you know, values and perspectives. And yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely tough, but, but also hard when you have data that shows how effective it can be too. Right. Yeah. Well, and you, you hit on a great point that actually uh, it's the more fiscally conservative choice to right. make, right? That's right. That yeah, it actually it actually saves money in the long run. It's cheaper to give someone an apartment than to allow them to live on the streets. With how much money we spend mm-hmm. hospitalizing folks, policing folks, locking folks up on sanitation to clean the sidewalks, mm-hmm. all of the money that we we spend so much money to keep people homeless. Uh, and yeah. we could save Gosh. money if we just chose to not do that. And, and, but like you said, the reason that we don't is that it sort of, it comes up against our ideological values. And ultimately that's, that's what pushed me to decide to write a book because I've, I've been in this field for, for over five years and I've seen, Oh, we, we have everything we need. We've got, the model that works. We've got the money. We're just spending it wrong, right? So why why aren't we ending it? Why aren't we doing this? And the more I investigated that, the more I realized that that it is it's ideological. It's that it is coming up against things that we that we believe, not things that uh, we know. Uh, it's it's all coming down to what we're willing to accept and. And what's ideological is also theological, right? For people of faith, uh, and so I, I kind of boil it down in the book to being a question of grace, and ultimately, mm. what what do people of faith believe about God, uh, and what does God have to say about what people deserve? And mm. to me, the answer to that is grace. That yeah. uh, everyone deserves. Uh, all that God has to offer regardless of what they've done, what we think they've done, uh, where they're at in life. Um, there, There is no such thing as people who deserve good things and people who don't from a Christian theological perspective. So uh, I think that if we can 
get to the root of that and apply it to this this question of homelessness, mm-hmm. I really think we could unlock what it would take ideologically to accept what we know works in every other way. Hmm. Yeah. And I love you uh, transitioned right there kind of ahead of my next question was going to be right. Like our, so this show, obviously the byline is like that we, we look at things, talk about topics through the lenses of faith and mental health. And I wanted to touch on both of those. So the, my next question was going to be your, your at work on this upcoming book, a Christian call to end homelessness is the, the, tagline of the book or the whatever secondary title whatever you call these things i don't know i don't have a published book like subtitle like you fancy people um (laughs) subtitle (laughs) but yes subtitle there you go um but i was gonna ask you know why why is this a topic to approach from a christian lens as opposed to okay we want to take care of people or a financial you know or a a political right but uh, you just spoke to it so eloquently right there um is there anything else you know as you're writing this book and you're kind of wrestling with the theological side things like that that you're you're kind of saying okay from a uniquely christian lens like here's what makes sense here's where i think we need some shifts absolutely i and really it is it ends up being kind of more specific and topical right so the way i'm approaching this book uh, largely is each chapter is focused on a specific aspect of the question of, of homelessness or some of the intersections around homelessness. So there's a chapter that is focused on housing. And that's where I talk about the housing first model. I talk about, you know, home ownership and sort of the the American dream and kind of put that into into conversation with kind of a Christian ethic of land and land stewardship. And then I also I have a, a chapter I'm I just outlined yesterday uh, about mental health, right? Because there's obviously a huge intersection between homelessness and mental health that sometimes is misunderstood, but is clearly, uh, clearly relevant. Uh, and so we do have to talk about how, how churches and how Christianity has historically responded to, to mental illness to understand where we're at with homelessness and how we kind of get over that hump. Uh, the same is true for, uh, for substance use. Uh, I think the church has historically responded in some ways to the issue of, you know, alcoholism and and drug addiction well, and in other ways, not so well. And so we we have to confront those things that I think are all really intertwined with the same question of, you know, what do people deserve? uh, And what does grace, how does grace tell us otherwise? Uh, But there are a bunch of really unique touch points, especially for how kind of a general, especially American Christianity has has handled these really difficult topics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you uh, actually, again, you uh, you were one step ahead of me in terms of providing the perfect segue. So uh, I'm going to point in the show Keep notes. Up, Robert. Link- Keep up. I know. <laughs> in the show notes, I'm going to link to <laughs> an article uh, that you wrote called What Can We Do About Homelessness and Mental Illness, right? So I, I mentioned before, I wanted to touch on the faith aspect and then the mental health aspect. So can you uh, real quick, and again, I know it's like a, a pretty big topic, but give us some sense of kind of the the interweaving of mental health with homelessness or homeless insecurity and, and how that factors in things like that. Definitely. I think that there are there are a lot of people who want to say that homelessness is a mental health crisis. And some do that in a very dismissive way to say, 
oh, you know, mm. homelessness isn't an mm-hmm. issue of housing. It's like people are crazy and we need to like institutionalize them and lock them up <laughs> and get them off the streets, right? There are other folks who are much more well-meaning who point to, you know, the the ways that our country really deinstitutionalized our mental health system without providing, you know, localized care, uh, who have really abandoned people with severe mental health issues to homelessness by not providing any sort of robust care, whether institutional or not. But I'm always really careful to not to not conflate homelessness and mental illness. One, because statistically it is not, you know, that it is a Venn diagram, but it is not a circle, right? There are lots of people who experience homelessness Mm -hmm. who do not have severe mental illness. And there are a lot of people who experience mental illness who uh, have housing. Uh, And that's a a piece I want to really focus on because things like mental illness or substance use or unemployment are not causes of homelessness necessarily. They are risk factors for homelessness. And and that distinction is important because yeah. experiencing a mental illness does not cause somebody to run out to the streets and live in a tent. The reason mm-hmm. that they experience yeah. homelessness is because there is not a system of care or a safety net to allow people who are experiencing extreme mental health crises to remain housed. Uh, especially mm. in cities where uh, housing is really expensive. So, for example, you know, I'm in Los Angeles, where homeless, where housing is astronomically expensive. I know a lot of folks who have serious mental health disorders, right? Paranoid schizophrenia, uh, bipolar disorder, and who have sought treatment for it, who have applied and been granted social security disability and who receive a check every month for that disability that is intended to help them, right? However, that check maxes at about $1,200 and their disability prevents Mm. them from getting any other sort of income and $1,200 cannot get you an apartment in this city. So, So that right there means that you can do everything right and have have your mental illness and pursue every sort of treatment that's available and every sort of benefit that's available to you within our system and still be essentially required to sleep on the streets. And that's not okay. Mm. And that's also not the case in other parts of this country, like the Midwest, where you can have disability beyond government benefits and and use that toward an apartment and still have money left over to buy food, right? So it really does come mm-hmm. down to affordable housing more than it comes down to any of these other risk factors, right? Because you can yeah. uh, you can have schizophrenia and be addicted to methamphetamines in certain parts of this country and still be able to afford housing. And that housing allows you to manage those other issues uh, in mm-hmm. ways that being unhoused does not. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah. that's good. I I appreciate how you're elevating that like in certain parts of the country, it, it, it's just the support looks different and the attention and the um, – but also like the the support that is received is able to go further to really help folks stay uh, within a, a stable housing situation. So I, I recognize too that, you know, this is certainly a – this is a really complex, layered issue in a lot of ways, um, and it touches on a lot of different areas uh, of society and, and of an individual's lived experience, and there's lots of different forms of support that can come in that you know we've kind of talked about, but in recognition of the complexity but also, you know, in recognizing this model, this housing first model that you've already elevated as well. I know that there's not an easy I'm well, I'm you are the expert here. So, I would say, you know, from from what I understand there this is not something that we can very easily just say, okay, here's the real quick plan and it'll all be fixed for everybody across the board. That said, I would imagine that there are still ways that folks can come alongside and help and serve and alleviate and support, um, particularly those who are experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity. So I'd be curious, Kevin, what you would say in terms of, you know, what is it that that we could do, um, you know, whether it's on an individual level, like what are some things that listeners can do? We're on a larger scale as we think about, you know, systemic change overall. You know, what are some things that you would elevate or recommend for folks to consider uh, doing? Yeah, and I, speaking to the the first part of your question, trying to wrap your mind around. Well, it mm-hmm. does seem like we have the model, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. Uh, yeah. the 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 issue there is that we have the model. But in order to implement housing first, we actually need the housing. Uh, And that is the hardest thing to get. One, because Mm -hmm. it's expensive. Two, because we're really, really far behind. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's close to for every 100 individuals who need affordable housing, there are only, there's less than 30 available. Oh my gosh. Uh, And so we we need to just so, so drastically increase our affordable housing stock by building new ones, converting unaffordable housing to affordable housing. There's lots of different ways to do that, and we need to do all of them at the same time, basically. Uh, So yeah, number one, support any measure that gets affordable housing built everywhere, not just in the bad part of town, uh, not just in the next town over we need it literally everywhere in this country Mm. and as fast as possible that's one piece but uh knowing that that will take time knowing that that is gonna be a a long-term concerted effort to make that happen uh, absolutely there's things that we can do today i think that we do need to concentrate on alleviating the the misery and the harm of experiencing homelessness some of that is harm that we cause mm-hmm. by by criminalizing, right? We should we should stop criminalizing homelessness. We should stop all of the efforts that we put forth to make it more miserable, like hostile architecture, policing. Yeah, all of these things that we do mm-hmm. 
thinking that we're going to like make homelessness miserable enough that people will stop choosing it, which is just the, one of the most baffling approaches and yet is so universal. But from a more, from a less cynical <laughs> approach, there's not just things that we need to stop doing, but there's really a great opportunity, uh, I think, to prioritize uh, relationships and community amongst people who are experiencing homelessness. So everything that we identify as things that cause harm or, or things that make homelessness worse, uh, like mental health, physical health, uh, substance use, those are all things that worsen in isolation. Uh, and so in many ways, mm. I think that homelessness is a crisis of isolation, right? In the same way that isolation causes homelessness. You know, if I, if I lost my job tomorrow and, you know, all my bank accounts were empty, I would still not sleep on the streets tonight because I have a network of family and friends that would prevent that. Right. So for, to know that somebody is mm. experiencing homelessness, you sort of know, at least in some way that they are isolated and, and don't have a support network in some way. And then once you're, once you are on the streets and uh, people walking by don't want to look you in the eye, you know, restaurants and businesses want you away from them. That isolation makes your mental health worse. It makes your physical health worse. It's what I've talked about with COVID, mm-hmm. right? People being more isolated has led to more people dying because of isolation. Uh, I think there's an invitation as individuals and as churches to respond to that isolation by creating opportunities to build relationships uh, and community more than what a lot of churches do currently, which is more of a transactional model of service where, you know, they might host a meal or, you know, give out socks or resources of some kind, which, which we still need. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to tell churches not to do that. I think on top of that or alongside that nonprofits, churches, groups, individuals can prioritize bringing people out of isolation, getting to know people and creating spaces and environments where people can engage in conversation, engage in activities that make them come alive. These are these are the things that make us human, right? That they take us out of our uh, survival brain and into our flourishing brain that, that seem uh, inessential, right? Uh, but are really critical to what makes us people and not just bodies who need to eat, sleep, and breathe air. Yeah, uh, I yeah. think if we can approach, especially churches who I think are are kind of wired this way, right, to prioritize community and gathering and shared experience, if we could apply that same ethos to how we approach homelessness – uh, I think that homelessness would be less of a miserable experience and and people would be met where they're at with uh, the services that they need at a much higher rate. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. And I'll, I'll point folks to, I know you also offer virtual trainings on responding as Christians to opioid overdose. So I'll just point to your website for that. Uh, I know we don't have time to 
get super in-depth into that. Um, one thing, Kevin, that we love asking people when they come on is obviously you, you've put time and effort into uh, working in this area in the, in the last handful of years, and then uh, even ministry and things before that, and you're working on this book, and uh, you've dedicated so much time and effort into this, right? What's your, what's your hope for all the work that you're doing, if you had to kind of sum it up, right? Like, what's, what's, what's your hope for all of this? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, my the the subtitle of my book is a Christian call to end homelessness. Um, it's it's a really big goal, but I think we can do it. Uh, I think that, like I said, we have everything we need except for the ideological will to end homelessness. I think that it can happen in my lifetime. So that that's a big goal with a capital G. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think if I have smaller goal, uh, a little lowercase g goal, it's uh, to to get more more Christians and more churches utilizing the best practices that that I've learned and that uh, advocates and social workers have have been doing that we know work to serve vulnerable people. And to really synthesize that with our theological beliefs about about who God is and what God calls us to to do, uh, I think there is a lot of antagonism that that doesn't need to be there. And I'd love to I'd love that for my work and my book and everything I do to help move move some people along in that regard. Yeah. That's good. Listener, if you want to yeah. connect with Kevin, you can find him at kevinmnye.com, on Twitter at kevinmnye1, or on facebook.com slash kevinmnye. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at hollyoxhandler. You can connect with me at robert-vore.com or on any social media at robertvore. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. Any closing thoughts for our listeners? Um, I don't think so. Uh, other than I think that at the time that this is released, you can pre-order my book. Should be available on any uh, any bookseller. And the title again is uh, "Grace Can Lead Us Home: A Christian Call to End Homelessness." Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMH Podcast at gmail.com.